Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the Tricon Residential Fourth Quarter Analyst Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star then one on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star then zero. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Wojtek Novak, Managing Director of Capital Markets. Thank you. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Jason. Good morning, everyone. And thank you for joining us to discuss Tricon's results for the three months and year ended December 31st, 2020, which were shared in the news release distributed yesterday. I would like to remind you that our remarks and answers to your questions may contain forward-looking statements and information. This information is subject to risks and uncertainties that may cause actual events or results to differ materially. For more information, please refer to our most recent management's discussion and analysis and annual information form, which are available on CDAR and our company website. Our remarks also include references to non-GAAP financial measures, which are explained and reconciled in the MD&A. I would also like to remind everyone that all figures are being quoted in U.S. dollars, unless otherwise stated. Please note that this call is available by webcast at triconresidential.com and a replay will be accessible there following the call. Lastly, please note that during this call, we will be referring to a supplementary conference call presentation posted on our website. If you haven't already accessed it, it will be a useful tool to help you follow along during the call. You can find this presentation in the investor section of triconresidential.com under news and events. With that, I will turn the call over to Gary Berman, president and CEO of Tricon. Thank you, Wojtek, and good morning, everyone. I hope everybody listening in is doing well and is healthy. I want to start the call today by first recognizing the truly incredible efforts of our frontline employees and their unwavering commitment to go above and beyond for our residents throughout the pandemic, and most recently during the extreme cold weather and power outages that affected Texas, Nashville, and Indianapolis. Our thoughts are with our colleagues as well as our residents and their families who have been affected. Our frontline team is working tirelessly to ensure our residents are well taken care of, and we've been fortunate not to incur any material damage to our property. During these challenging times, our organization has been well served by our guiding principles, such as going above and beyond to enrich the lives of others and doing what's right, not what's easy. I'm extremely proud of how our team has worked together through adversity while consistently delivering strong operating metrics. We have our heroes in Santa Ana and our on-the-ground employees to thank for that. Let's start on slide two and talk about the key takeaways we want to emphasize for you in recapping the fourth quarter of 2020. First, our results this quarter demonstrate how our Sunbelt-focused investment strategy and middle market resident profile are a winning formula in today's environment, allowing us to benefit from exceptional demand trends, which have only accelerated throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Second, the recently announced syndication of our U.S. multifamily portfolio is a significant step towards our previously announced fundraising and deleveraging goals, and we anticipate more third-party fundraising in 21 to 
to accelerate our growth plans. Third, from an operational perspective, our single-family rental business is performing incredibly well, and we expect the strong performance to continue. Lastly, we believe the operating metrics in our U.S. multifamily portfolio troughed in Q3, and we are encouraged by the steady improvement we've seen in Q4 and into the first couple of months of 21. Now let's turn to slide three for a summary of our results. We reported core FFO per share of 16 cents this quarter, an increase of 60% compared to last year. As we break this down, our net operating income grew an impressive 14% year over year, and by keeping corporate costs under control and obviously benefiting from the lower interest rate environment we find ourselves in, we are able to turn meaningfully higher NOI into off-the-charts growth when measured on a per-share basis. In our single-family rental business, we continue to see very strong growth from new and existing assets as Tricon's proportionate share of NOI increased by 11% and SAMO NOI grew 5.1% compared to last year. We also achieved record SAMO NOI margin of 66.8% by maintaining high occupancy of 97.3%, achieving record low turnover of 22.2%, and generating strong blended rent growth of 5.6% while still governing, self-governing on renewals. In U.S. multifamily rental, we are encouraged by our improving results, with NOI up 3.3% sequentially in Q4 and operating metrics strengthening further into 21. It is also worth noting that even though our U.S. multifamily NOI was down 6% in 2020 on a full-year basis, core FFO increased slightly year-over-year on account of interest savings. And lastly, for-sale housing was a real bright spot this quarter, distributing $14.4 million of cash to Tricon as it benefited from broad-based strength across the housing market. As you can see, our business is performing exceptionally well. Now let's turn to slide four, where we discuss the three key pillars that are driving Tricon's success, namely our people and culture, our operational excellence, and our growth. These topics were covered extensively in our Analyst Investor Day, which we hosted on January 27th. If you didn't have a chance to listen in, we'd encourage you to watch the replay to get a sense of Tricon's purpose-driven approach to doing business, the depth of our senior leadership team, and the way we embrace technology and innovation to provide our residents with better customer service. With over 120 members of the investment community joining us virtually, the event was a huge success and is a great resource for new and existing investors seeking to better understand our company. Let me add that Tricon has invested in U.S. residential real estate which represents a $26 trillion industry. This industry is not only vast, but also highly fragmented and presents Tricon with an extraordinary opportunity to continue to grow with both public and private capital. We're incredibly excited about our growth prospects and our ability to use our expanding platform to do good. And we enter 21 expecting this year to be the most prolific period in our corporate history. Let's turn to slide five and talk about major demographic, social, and technological shifts many of which have commenced prior to March 20, but which have accelerated as a result of the pandemic, and which we believe will create strong operating tailwinds over the coming decade. The great migration trend to the U.S. Sunbelt, which has been occurring for years as Americans move from north to south in search of jobs, better weather, and lower taxes, is now accelerating further as people seek out the safety and serenity of lower density living in the suburbs. According to John Burns Real Estate Consulting, the Sun Belt consists of 40% of the U.S. population, but will garner at least 60% of the population growth going forward. Government-mandated work from home has only reinforced the appeal of the U.S. Sun Belt. If one is afforded the freedom to work anywhere, 
why not move to the so-called smile states and take advantage of superior weather and housing affordability? While conventional office space remains necessary to foster culture and team building, we believe that advances in communications infrastructure and video conferencing have permanently changed the way we work. And then on the margin, more and more employers and employees will offer more flexible work-live arrangements, which in turn will increase demand for additional living space in general and single-family homes in particular. At Tricon, we believe that demographics are destiny and that the millennial cohort will drive significant demand for single-family housing as they enter their primary years of family formation. The millennial cohort is larger than the baby boomers, and they're ready more Americans in their early 30s than any other age group. Millennials are not only in their prime years of forming families, but also are showing a preference for flexible and maintenance-free lifestyle that best suits rental living and the sharing economy they've grown accustomed to. Meanwhile, at the other end of the spectrum, older baby boomers are increasingly opting to age in place rather than move into retirement facilities, and this trend will likely become even more pronounced given the prevalence of COVID-19 outbreaks in many senior housing facilities. In essence, both millennials and boomers are working in unison, albeit for different reasons, to drive massive demand for suburban housing. We like to think of the period after the Great Recession as a lost decade for housing, where the home building industry was also slow to recover and supply stagnated, especially for more affordable starter homes. And so now that we enter a boom period of housing demand spurred by the pandemic and historically low interest rates, we find ourselves in an environment of relatively constrained supply at a time where demand is surging, which should lead to significantly higher home prices and rents. You can see this dynamic at play within our own portfolio on slide six, where there's been a strong historical correlation between home prices and rents. The average value of our single family rental homes has increased by eight for three years, while rents in our portfolio have increased by 13%. These numbers are impacted by acquisitions and lower renewal rents over time, and are therefore not exactly apples to apples, but directionally they prove the point. Tricon shareholders get a double whammy, benefiting not only from strong growth in rents and NOI, but also higher net asset value per share as our existing homes appreciate in value. And with home prices and rents moving more or less in lockstep, we are able to continue to grow by acquiring homes at stable cap rates while we get the benefit of ultra low financing. Let's turn to slide seven. The combination of strong fundamentals in rental housing and our ability to execute in operations in a field where there are relatively few proven operators is enabling us to manage significantly more third-party capital. As you can see on this slide, we expect to raise $1.2 billion of third-party equity capital across all our rental businesses in 21, which would make this the most prolific year of fundraising in Tricon's 33-year history. We're very excited to have put a check mark beside one of the key opportunities outlined here the upcoming syndication of our U.S. multifamily portfolio to two major institutional investors. Before we discuss the transaction in more detail, I want to remind everyone that we are primarily a balance sheet investor, but raise third-party capital strategically to allow us to add scale and gain operating efficiencies, to take development off balance sheet, to source capital when the public market window is closed, and to enhance our return on equity by earning management fees. On slide eight, you can see a summary of our new U.S. multifamily joint venture, which was an extensive undertaking during a pandemic. And so I want to thank our team for their hard work and also welcome our new partners into this venture. Under the JV, which we expect to close this month, two institu institutional investors will acquire a combined 80% interest in our existing portfolio of 23 apartment properties, while we retain a 20% interest and continue to manage the portfolio. 
The transaction values the portfolio at $1.33 billion, which is in line with our current balance sheet valuation, and upon closing will generate gross proceeds to Tricon of approximately $425 million. The transaction will allow us to accomplish two key goals. The first is creating a platform for growth. Our goal has always been to pursue U.S. multifamily, which is the largest investable segment in residential real estate alongside third-party investors. We will now have two partners in place for the strategy and are in discussions with them to form a separate growth-oriented joint venture, which would allow us to add scale and balance out our existing portfolio. Our second goal has been to lower our leverage, including re reducing our net debt to assets to a range of 50 to 55% by 22. We are pleased to announce that upon closing, we expect our leverage ratio to be approximately 50%. In fact, over the course of a year, we will have succeeded in reducing our net debt to assets by about 1,100 basis points, an impressive accomplishment in the midst of a pandemic and worldwide recession, and one that was Sam and his team should be commended for. Shifting gears to slide nine, I'd like to give an update on our ESG initiatives, and specifically our ongoing commitment to social causes. This quarter, our employees participated in Tricon's Pay It Forward program, which was inspired by Tricon's desire to make a difference in the local communities that we serve. The program works as follows. We deposit $100 into each of our employees' bank accounts at the end of November with the only stipulation that they pay it forward to an organization or individual of their choice that is in need. This program also inspires many employees to match their initial donation, creating a multiplier effect, which leads to even more giving. Since the program's inception a couple of years ago, our team has donated approximately $200,000 to a wide variety of causes that are near and dear to our hearts and which improve the lives of so many. At Tricon, there's real purity in our mission. We care deeply about our employees and the communities in which we operate. By focusing on the well-being of our employees first, they're inspired and empowered to go above and beyond for our residents. And when our residents are fulfilled, they stay with us longer and treat our properties like their own which translates into better financial results for our investors. In essence, by taking a balanced approach to our stakeholders, we are able to put everyone, employees, residents, and investors in a better position and truly drive sustainability. That concludes my opening remarks. I would now like to pass the presentation over to Sam to discuss our financial results. Thank you, Gary, and good morning, everyone. Let's begin with slide 10 and re review the five key priorities which we introduced last year. These include growing our core FFO per share at a compounded annual rate of 10% over three years through 2022, raising approximately 1 billion of third-party capital over three years, growing book value per share by reinvesting our free cash flow into accretive growth opportunities, reducing our leverage, and improving our reporting. You can see these priorities represented in a graphical dashboard on slide 11. Our team has worked incredibly hard over this past year to make meaningful progress on all fronts getting us much closer to meeting our 2022 targets. Let's start with a three-year FFO target. We had a strong quarter and achieved 16 cents of FFO per share, which brings us to 49 cents per share for the full year. Assuming the current trends hold, we are confident that we can achieve our FFO target of 52 to 57 cents in 2022, even with higher diluted share count caused by the exchangeable preferred share offering and deleveraging. In terms of raising third-party capital, we are well on our way to raising another billion dollars of fee-bearing capital ahead of schedule with the upcoming syndication of the U.S. multifamily portfolio as a meaningful step towards this goal. 
We also expect additional capital raises in our SFR business and Canadian multifamily business later this year. Another one of our priorities is reducing leverage tar target range of 50 to 55%. With the syndication of the US multifamily portfolio, we have reached the low end of the target range ahead of schedule and will continue to work on bringing our leverage lower over the long term while continuing to grow our business. Our final priority was improving our reporting, which is substantially completed with our transition from investment entity accounting to consolidating accounting earlier this year, as well as adopting REIT-like MDNA disclosures such as FFO per share and AFFO per share. With ESG as a company-wide priority, we issued our first ESG roadmap at the beginning of 2020 and are looking forward to publishing our first annual ESG report in the coming weeks. Let's turn to slide 12, where we provide highlights of our key metrics for the quarter. First, our net income grew 87% year-over-year to $81.5 million. This included $79 million of NOI from our rental properties, representing a 14% year-over-year increase. We also had a $107 million fair value gain from rental properties in Q4, compared to $32 million in the prior year, reflecting strong home price appreciation in Tricon's core markets. Second, our core FFO per share increased 60% to $0.16 cents or $0.20 cents Canadian. Reminder that this excludes our fair value gains on the Canadian multifamily business, which historically was included. Q4 tends to have some one-time adjustments, and we do not view this as an appropriate run rate going forward, but the underlying numbers show robust performance in all of our residential segments. Third, we reported AFFO of $0.13 cents per share, which translates to $0.17 cents Canadian and provides us with ample cushion to support our quarterly dividend of $0.07 cents Canadian per share, reflecting an AFFO payout ratio of 32%. Let's move to slide 13, which highlights the drivers that contributed to our FFO growth for the quarter. Our year-over-year -year increase of $0.06 cents per share was due to strength across all aspects of our business. Our single-family rental portfolio, which makes up two-thirds of our assets, delivered 11% growth in Tricon's share of NOI, reflecting an 8% increase in number of homes in the portfolio, coupled with very strong blended rent growth of 5.4% and a healthy occupancy of 96.4%. Our other businesses also contributed meaningfully this quarter. Of note, residential development performed exceptionally well as demand for development lots in our for-sale housing business has exceeded our expectations during the pandemic. The business contributed $11.5 million to our core FFO this quarter and generated $14.4 million of cash for Tricon. Our multifamily business also reported a slight increase in FFO as lower NOI was offset by interest expense savings. Likewise, we saw a year-over-year -year decrease in corporate interest expense due to refinancing activities that have allowed us to benefit from lower interest rate environment as well as lower balance outstanding on our corporate credit facility. There are two other factors that essentially net each other out. First, we benefited from a one-time tax recovery of $7.3 million this quarter, driven by tax losses applied to historical tax gains. And offsetting that is a higher compensation expense, mainly driven by year-end bonus accrual and PSUs. Given the uncertainty of the pandemic, we had accrued a lower variable compensation in the first three quarters of the year, and true this up for actual performance in Q4. 
Lastly, we adjusted our PSU liability as the share price increases. For the full year, however, cash compensation was up 3% year-over-year. And lastly, let's not forget, our weighted average diluted share count was up 16% higher than last year, reflecting our exchangeable preferred share issuance in August. Turning over to slide 14, we have significantly improved our liquidity profile over the past year, as well as positioned ourselves to address our near-term debt maturities and potentially realize significant interest expense savings. We currently have $529 million of corporate liquidity, including cash on hand and room on our corporate credit facility. The U.S. multifamily syndication will enhance this further. In terms of use of proceeds from the syndication, we plan to immediately pay and retire the $110 million credit facility outstanding on the portfolio, which is due to mature later this year. We also have the option to prepay some of the property-level debt in the single-family rental portfolio, which matures next year. Beyond that, we expect to pay down our corporate credit facility in full and have cash on hand for near-term growth of investments. As we look out to 2022, aside from retiring a portion of our debt, we expect to refinance the bulk of these maturities with new property-level debt, including securitizations. We see a significant opportunity for interest expense savings in today's low interest rate environment, given that the blended rate of these maturities is just over 3%, whereas our latest securitization was done at 1.83%. And so if we could save 100 basis points on the 1 billion of debt shown here, that translates to about 10 million of interest expense annually, or 3 cents incremental core FFO per share for Tricon. I realize talking about financing and interest expense savings is exciting, but what's more exciting is talking about our operations. With that, I'll turn it over to Kevin Baldrich, Chief Operating Officer, to discuss the operational highlights for the quarter. Thank you very much for that exciting handoff with Sam. And hello, everyone. When I take a moment to reflect on our successes over the past year, I think of how proud I am of our dedicated teams who have continued to persevere during these difficult times to improve the lives of our residents while at the same time delivering exceptional operating metrics and adapting to the many changes that have come their way. We remain steadfast in our commitment to putting our employees and our residents first, which ultimately is in the best interest of our investors. I also wanted to take a moment to acknowledge all of our employees and our residents who have been impacted by the recent winter storms in Texas, Nashville, and Indianapolis. As Gary mentioned earlier, our residents and our employees who have been affected are top of mind, and we continue to work diligently at the local levels to prioritize their safety and well-being. Let's now turn to slide 15 to review the operational performance of our single-family rental business, which represents about two-thirds of our proportional balance sheet exposure. The business continued to benefit from secular tailwinds, which drove higher occupancy, rent growth, and resident retention, resulting in same-home NOI growth of 5.1% year-over-year. As we delve into the numbers, same-home revenues grew by 2.8%. This was driven by an occupancy increase of 140 basis points and higher average rents, which resulted in rental revenue that was 5.6% higher than last year. The offsetting factor was higher bad debt expense of 2.8% of revenue compared to 0.8% in the prior year. Our bad debt expense has been increasing over time as previously delinquent residents tend to carry over into the next month 
and new delinquencies are layered on top of that. However, with more clarity on U.S. stimulus measures entering into the new year, along with the push for the economy reopening, we do think that we are at a peak in our bad debt and that this number will start to stabilize in the near term, with bad debt normalizing to 2022 when the pandemic is hopefully well behind us. On the expense side, we saw a modest increase of 1.6% compared to last year due to a reduction in controllable expenses, specifically a 10% decrease in turnover costs. Our turnover rate decreased by 310 basis points compared to last year to 22.3%, reflecting a propensity to stay in place as a result of the pandemic, as well as our focus on superior resident service. Property taxes grew by only 2.1% year over year due to a one-time tax adjustment in Q4 2019, which, was, which made our property tax unusually high that quarter. On a full year basis, property taxes increased by 4.4%. In addition, we saw a 5% increase in property insurance as premiums increased across the industry. Together, robust revenue growth combined with diligent expense control translated into a record high same home NOI margin of 66.8% in Q4. As we start the new year, one can see on slide 16 that the positive trends have continued into January. Occupants remains at all time highs and rent growth on new move-ins has remained in double digits as we harvest the loss to leases that has built up over time with our low turnover rate. Meanwhile, rent growth on renewals has started to tick upwards as strong demand for our homes allows us to push that metric a bit more, while, we, while still being sensitive to a challenging economic environment impacting our residents. Now let's turn to slide 17 to discuss our U.S. multifamily business. I'm pleased to say that it feels like we bottomed in Q3 2020 and are now seeing incremental improvement in our metrics. Year over year, the Q4 variance is still negative as NOI decreased by 8%. I would note that our concessions accounting policy is conservative, whereby we expense all concessions in the current period. If we were to amortize concessions over the term of the lease, our year-on-year -year NOI decline would have been 7.1%. If we look at the components of NOI, revenues were down 3.4% relative to last year, as a result of lower occupancy, higher leasing concessions, and higher bad debt provisions, offset slightly by higher revenue from new ancillary services. Expenses increased by 3.2% year-over-year, driven by slightly higher property management expenses, property insurance, as well as repairs and maintenance and turnover expenses at specific properties. While the year-over-year -year percentage change in NOI is meaningful, the dollar change is only 1.4 million and underscores the fact that our portfolio of 23 properties is still relatively small when compared to the rest of our residential rental business. The location of our multifamily assets are also not as diversified as the portfolios of some of our public peers. We continue to experience challenges in Houston and Orlando, which make up 32% of the total suites in our portfolio. These markets are among the hardest hit by the pandemic with unemployment rates above the national average. 
On the bright side, however, the quarterly FFO contribution of the multifamily business actually increased by $100,000 compared to last year, as we benefited significantly from lower LIBOR rates, which positively impacted interest expense on roughly a third of the portfolio's debt that is tied to floating rates. Also, looking at the sequential trend from Q3 to Q4, one can see that NOI has increased by 3.3%, and we are optimistic that performance can get better from here. The, increased, the increase reflects stronger occupancy and improved expense control, which more than offsets pressure from blended rent growth, which was still negative, but to a lesser extent than in recent quarters. On that note, let's turn to slide 18 for an analysis of the sequential trends on a monthly basis. From October to the end of January, we've seen a 130 basis point increase in occupancy, ending at 94.6%. Likewise, our blended rent growth is now in positive territory, reaching 1.1% as of January. We're getting closer to flat lease tradeouts on new leases, coupled with strong renewal increases. Notably, we have achieved these improvements while reducing the use of concessions, which has moved from 420 per lease in July to $70 in January. This could continue to serve as a positive tailwind for net operating income. I'd like to end off with slide 19 to give you a sense of our top operational priorities for the year ahead. Our first priority is to grow same home NOI. We expect to maintain a strong occupancy bias and see continued upside to rent growth, especially on new leases. Additionally, we continue to grow ancillary revenues while keeping the cost to maintain stable. While we believe our bad debt exposure peaked in Q420, we expect it will remain above pre-pandemic levels much of 2021, returning back to normal sometime in 2022. Second, we plan to increase acquisitions by gradually ramping up our purchases to between 800 and 1,000 homes per quarter and expanding our builder rent program. Third, we plan to continue innovating to drive efficiencies, which has been a company-wide priority for years. In 2021, our focus is on expanding our smart home offering, escalating our use of intelligent virtual agent technology to help automate the scheduling of leasing tours and respond to maintenance requests in our call center. We'll also be expanding our national procurement program and continuing to improve our fleet efficiency and productivity. Finally, we plan to realize synergies between our single-family and multifamily portfolios in the areas of maintenance, leasing, and operations. We will also be relying on our operating platform to lease up and stabilize three Canadian multifamily assets over the next 12 to 24 months. Of course, with all of the above, our top priority is always to ensure our employees and residents stay safe and healthy as we work through the tail end of the pandemic while maintaining our mission of providing quality housing for families across America. Now I'll turn the call back over to Gary for closing remarks. Thank you, Kevin, for that exciting update. I'd like to conclude our presentation today with an overview of upcoming catalysts on slide 20 that our team has been working on. First, we expect to close the syndication of our U.S. multifamily portfolio this month, and that ties to our second point here, that upon closing of this transaction, our leverage will be approximately 50% net debt to assets, which again represents a reduction of 1,100 basis points of leverage in just one year. In terms of growth, 
We are working on additional third-party capital raises across all residential strategies, which I outlined earlier. Our own balance sheet investments will remain focused on single-family rental, which will account for over 80% of our net asset value going forward. Our acquisition program is back to pre-pandemic levels, and we expect to accelerate acquisitions of rental homes during the year. Meanwhile, our legacy for-sale housing assets remain a very small part of our business, but are quietly generating significant cash. We expect to generate over $300 million in the next five to seven years, which can be used for deleveraging and to reallocate to our rental housing businesses. And lastly, north of the border, we continue to construct, develop, and stabilize our Canadian multifamily development properties. In addition to the Selby, we've around 3,700 units under various stages of development and construction. And we believe that when these properties are stabilized over the next three to four years, and we apply today's cap rates, we will be able to generate another $2 per share of value on top of the existing IFRS NAP. So we see significant value upside as we quietly incubate a best-in-class multifamily portfolio. I'm very proud of the progress our team made in 2020 in the face of an extremely challenging environment. We are very fortunate to emerge from the pandemic in such a strong position and to be able to hit the ground running in 21 with so many exciting plans. That concludes our prepared remarks. I'll pass the call back to Jason to take questions. With Sam, Kevin, and I will be joined by John Allenswig, Andy Carmody, and Andrew Joyner to answer questions. As a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, simply press the pound key. We will now pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from the line of Steve McLeod from BMO Capital Markets. Your line is open. Uh, thank you. Good morning, guys. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so lots of great detail on the call, and, and congrats on the quarter. The business is really humming along very nicely. Um, thank you. I just had a couple of questions. Just a couple of questions for you. You know, you had some interesting commentary, um, you know, around the third-party, um, third-party capital commitments, and I'm just wondering if you could give a little bit of color on a couple of things. The first one being um, the multifamily JV growth expectations. I know that's still in process. Um, the second one, and then the second one being, are you able to give a little bit of timing around the SFR JV2 and uh, Canadian multifamily um, uh, timing for those? those, uh, those uh, yeah. investments as well. Yeah, sure. So I, I think in terms of sequencing, um, the next uh, announcement you should expect for us will be on the Canadian multifamily development side, built the core. We are working with a major, invest, a major investor to grow that strategy and to take advantage of dislocation in Toronto. And so uh, you should spec, expect something from us on that fairly soon. Um, with respect to um, the single family rental initiatives, um, and really that represents, I think, the lion's share of what we're really going to raise over the balance of the year. And, and we're obviously there's major focus, as we talked about, in terms of our balance sheet investments. Um, that capital will likely be announced in Q2, right? We're working on two major initiatives. One is a continuation of the existing strategy, uh, JV1. So that we'll call that JV2. And the second one is what we've been calling Home Builder Direct, um, where we would be able to buy homes uh, from builders, public and private, new homes. So expect something there. Um, in Q2. With respect to the um, multifamily syndication that we just announced, we are working on a growth strategy. Uh, we call that a dry powder vehicle, and that's likely a Q2 event. Um, the overall amount will probably be a little bit lower than what we talked about before, 
um, but we will have the ability to upsize that if we see uh, if we see compelling opportunities. So overall, we're incredibly excited about um, all the third-party capital raising that we coming coming down the pipe, and 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 probably all of that again should hit in the first half of this year. Okay, that's uh, that's great. And and you mentioned the 1.2 billion dollar, um, which is committed. Um, is that is that the number, or is that sort of could that could that move around maybe to the to the maybe higher than that as you work through negotiations? Yeah, I, I would say that um, you know if I were to guess, is it going to be you know lower or higher? It's more likely to be higher. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. That's great. Thank you. Um, and then the SFR business, obviously, you know, benefiting from a lot of these uh, secular tailwinds and, um, you know, record NOI margin in the quarter. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that NOI margin moving as you, you know, ramp up your home buying program back to pre-pandemic levels and, uh, and drive, uh, you know, drive ongoing rent growth? What would you expect? How do you expect it to evolve kind of this year and maybe into next year as things normalize? Well, I think, I mean, again, the, the home buying wouldn't necessarily impact uh, certainly the same store margin or same home margin. It could over time if we, you know, depending where we buy homes. So I think I just I just want to be very clear that a major driver of the margin is where the homes are located in the property taxes, right? Because that's the biggest cost in the margin. And so you could have very different margins depending where your portfolio is located. So you do you do need to isolate that. But I think I think the most you know obvious thing to look at is that if we were to normalize um, bad debt and fees, remember you know through our ESG policy, um, we're trying to be as sympathetic as we can to our residents during this really difficult time. We're trying to keep them in our homes, so we are incurring uh, higher bad debt and, and we're earning less fees. If we were to just normalize that, um, our margin would be almost one percent higher. So instead of being close to sixty-seven percent, it'd be closer to sixty-eight percent. So that that's that's a that's a big move unto itself, um, and then you know again as we discussed in previous earnings calls, we continue to believe this is a business where we can drive revenues you know faster than costs over time, which could lead to more margin expansion. It's not crazy to think that one day you know we could have a seven handle on this margin. I mean, never thought in a million years we'd ever get there, but it is possible. It will take time. Um, the offsets to that are obviously property taxes. Um, you know, the, the states and, and local municipalities are going to need to find a way to incur more revenue. And one way to do that is obviously uh, through property taxes on residential property, which has been very strong. And, and obviously we are seeing, it's not a major component of the margin, but we are seeing higher uh, premiums on insurance. So those would be the offsets, but I, I think the trajectory for where we're going couldn't be better right now. Right, so nice positive bias there. Um, Okay, that's great. And then just finally, on the resi business, um, you had a nice bump in uh, some of the investments on for sale housing. Um, do you have any any insight into sort of how that, uh, what that looks like? You know, I, I know it's a lumpy business, but should we expect more of that going forward as we roll into this year, given the strength of the U.S. housing market? Or, um, or you know, what, what kind of visibility do you have into those uh, those fees coming in? The market's incredibly strong. I mean, I don't, no, I mean we haven't seen it this strong since since 2004 and five. I mean it's just the, the market's on fire. Um, obviously, it's a very difficult business to predict. It's the the cash flow is episodic, so I, I can't give you a huge amount of guidance. 
but I would say that we expect, you know, further strength in the year. Um, you know, from a modeling perspective, uh, I would probably just, you know, use, I mean, we used to guide to this kind of before the pandemic, um, but I would probably think, you know, if you look at our, uh, our fair value on the portfolio, which is about 160 million today, if you took, let's say seven and 9% as a kind of unlevered yield, you, you could kind of think about that as where, you know, the, the FFO or investment income could shake out over time. And, and hopefully we do better than that, but that's probably a fair range of seven and nine percent um, on the fair value. So I, I hope that helps, but I can't be any more specific than that. Yeah, certainly that's uh, that's helpful and understand it's uh, it's lumpy and difficult to predict. But th thank you, Gary, and uh, I'll pass the line. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Your next question comes from the line of Jonathan Kelcher from TD Securities. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Good morning, John. Um, just just continuing on the, um, I guess the, the the SFR business. What what's your expectation um, for property taxes and, and insurance increases in uh, in 2021? And and further, just on the on the insurance side, um, as you grow your portfolio, is there is there any chance for for savings, um, just given the, the bigger size? Yeah, so I'll, hi John, so I'll, I'll start with that and then I'll, I'll talk, I'll pass it over to with Sam. Um, so on property taxes, we, in working with our tax consultant, we think that there, you know, we, we probably guide to increases of five to 6% for 21, right? And, and remember for 20, we were four to 5%. We actually did better than we thought in 20, in 2020, but I think a little bit higher for 21, five to 6%, not as high as where it had been, you know, a few years ago. Uh, but obviously, it, it represents a, a bit of a headwind on the margin. And then on insurance, um, probably looking at insurance uh, increases to premiums of about 10% um, across the board, which is in line with the industry. Obviously, there's been a lot of storms, the recent event in, in, in Texas, and, and that's that's always putting a drag. Anything you want to add to that, Sam? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. The, the only thing I would add is we definitely do get a benefit of scale as we continue to grow the portfolio, and we also get a benefit of scale uh, by combining both single-family and multifamily. Uh, but despite all of that, we're still assuming uh, anywhere from nine to ten percent uh, growth in insurance premiums for next year. Okay, uh, that is helpful. And you guys, you guys do you net your bad debt against revenue, correct? Correct. Yes, that's right. Okay, um, and with Sam, I, I just I guess sticking with you because I, I like the balance sheet stuff too. Um, given given what interest rates have done the last uh, few weeks or so, what do you think you could do a current securitization at? Um, well, we're looking at the last securitization deal that we did uh, end of 2020. Uh, 2020 was around 1.83%. Uh, right now, we've seen the curve uptake after five years. Um, so if we were going to do the same transaction, uh, the rate would have gone up probably by anywhere between 25 to 75 basis points, depending on whether you want seven-year or eight-year or nine-year maturity. So we still think that it is very meaningfully lower than our 3% blended uh, maturities uh, interest expense, but we think we could probably be in the 225 uh, range right now. Okay, that is that is helpful. And then and lastly, um, you guys you do have your your convert come in about a, a year from now what what are your early thoughts on on what you're going to do with that 
Um, yeah, at this point, we obviously have the right uh, to force convert it uh, at the end of this month. Um, at this point, the idea is do nothing. Uh, we do think there's a lot of catalyst for our stock to move up further, at which point that will put it automatically in the money. So for now, we're just going to sit there, finish what we started, focus on completing the, uh, the growth, uh, and focus on raising the equity and see what happens. Um, so that's our short-term plan, but definitely okay. the idea that's, is to uh, convert it. Back. Thanks. I'll, uh, I'll turn it back. Great. Your next question comes from the line of Jian Tunke from Stiefel. Your line is open. Uh, hi, guys. Good morning. Um, just a couple of quick ones from me. Uh, Gary and the team, you know, uh, really good results, of course. Um, you're talking about 10%, you know, FFO growth on a go-forward basis, you know, um, but, you know, quick math suggests that your, that 10% growth number would put you for 2021, kind of in and around where your, your guidance is for 2022. Um, commentary from all the businesses sounds like everything's kind of running on all, all cylinders. Just wondering how you balance that growth. I mean, is it looking like it's too low? Is it an issue of, um, like with the last question, are you factoring in some conversion estimates? How do we balance, um, you know, the, the robust operating performance with, um, with the guidance there? Yeah, no, great question. Hi, Chian. Good morning. Um, well, look, there's there's a bunch of puts and takes, uh, I, I think, is to your question. The first one is that we are really now aiming to the very low end of the guidance on leverage, right, uh, you know, with this indication, and maybe we even go lower. So, obviously, if you prior, prioritize lower leverage, that will have an impact on the FFO growth. Um, so, it's something to keep in mind. And we've always, um, you know, we talked about the 10% growth as a CAGR over three years, not specific to any one year, right? So we've always, you know, and we, the reason we've done that is because we knew that there might be some conversions, some deleveraging. Um, if you just look at the syndication unto itself and you look at the, you know, 80% loss FFO, if you then add up, you know, all the interest savings and, and some of the, you know, fee income we're going to generate will actually be a little bit short. Um, so... The syndication in the short term, especially when we get into Q2, um, this is something everyone should be aware of, is going to be, um, it's going to be dilutive in the short term. But long term, we think it's neutral. So that all has to get taken into account um, into 21. But, you know, we don't, we're, you know, we're, I, I would say we're very confident um, that we will hit that 52 to 50 cents target, 57 cent target in 22. Very confident. And, um, and obviously, with a really strong operating fundamental, obviously, it could be at the high end of that range. Thanks for the color there, Gary. I um, appreciate it. Um, with respect to the multifamily syndication, um, is the fee structure similar to, you know, your, your SFR asset management program and the residential housing? Um, just want to double check that. Uh, is there any no, significant difference? Yeah, it's it's a little bit lower. Um, the 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 asset management fees are a little bit lower because it's really viewed as kind of you know core core plus real estate, whereas in um, in SFR you know we we it's more kind of viewed in the kind of value add opportunistic bucket where we're able to get higher fees. So it, the the asset management fees are lower. Uh, the performance fees I would say are very similar though. Okay, appreciate that. And just last question for me, um, with respect to, you know, in the past, you guys have talked about, you know, different ways to, you know, close the valuation gap um, with your U.S. peers, you know, one of which was a potential U.S. listing. Um, kind of how do you think about that now, um, given where you are in your business and, and um, all the puts and takes in your operations? 
I think that's something that you know we we absolutely are going to explore, um, and I, and I think long term could make uh, could make a lot of sense because obviously it it would give us uh, a U.S. currency which would certainly help at a minimum anchor our, our you know our, our balance sheet and our functional currency uh, which is U.S. dollars gives us an acquisition currency and uh, potentially could broaden um, you know the shareholding to a, to a larger audience uh, which would all all of that we think could be catalysts for you know you know, closing the valuation gap over time. So it's something we're going to look at. Uh, I don't think it's anything that's imminent, uh, but it's certainly something that, that we will be exploring. Thanks very much. That's it for me. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Tao Woolley from National Bank Financial. Your line is open. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Tao. Um, on the Canadian multifamily mm -hmm. side, if you're looking at, adding new projects in Toronto over the next few years. I'm just wondering how you've seen like your entry cost into new developments, you know, evolve, you know, from where we were in sort of say 2019 to maybe where we were in 2020 to where you see it going over the next couple of years, you know, is that price per buildable square foot kind of held steady? Is it still rising? Uh, are there any bargains out there? Maybe you can just comment uh, on that part of the market for me. Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to say is, uh, you know, we are working on a new uh, venture with a major investor to grow that strategy. And, and the reason we're doing that is, one, because we want to minimize the amount of equity that we put uh, into development. Uh, we want to try to be, uh, you know, as productive as we can with our own balance sheet. And we think there are, you know, good opportunities out there to take advantage of. Um, and so you will, you know, be learning about, you know, more about that soon. I'm not, I'm not going to get too specific because we are working on, a, on an opportunity that you'll, that you'll learn about. And, and it does, you know, represent an opportunity where we were able to pick up land at, I think, a pretty, you know, meaningful discount to where it was pre-pandemic. It's not to say that um, the market's distressed. Um, I, I think that would be a misrepresentation. But I think that there are, you know, certain pockets, certain vendors that, you know, maybe maybe got in trouble or got stretched, and there's there's an opportunity uh, because we're well capitalized to take advantage of that. So, you know, we 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 will be looking at that, but I want to be clear: it, it represents a small part of our kind of overall balance sheet allocation. And I and I think with respect to um, costs, costs um, are still moving up. You know, they're they're probably up five percent plus. Uh, there's some puts and takes there. But the industry, even throughout this pandemic, has continued to go full tilt. Um, you know, the trades are still stretched. There's certainly an increase in, uh, in, in you know, cost of, 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 of supplies, of material. And so we are still seeing, um, we're still seeing um, costs move up. Okay, that's helpful. And then just on the asset management platform. So, you know, you talked about if you sort of get, uh, the 1.2 billion in fresh commitments uh, executed, uh, and it all go, you know all works to plan. You're looking at about 10 million dollar incremental in fees. I'm wondering if we looked at a couple of years because we'll probably take you some time to deploy all that capital. Like, what what do you see sort of the run rate kind of number for that private funds uh, funds on advisory revenue? Uh, hmm. You know, like uh, longer term. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, let me try to break that down for you because there's there's a number of components to uh, PFNA. Uh, first one is asset management fees, and I I probably view those you know that run rate at around eleven maybe eleven million uh, today, 
and um, and 60% of that, let's say, comes from for sale housing. And so that for sale housing is going to burn off, let's say, over the next five years. But obviously, you just talked about the, the positive to that as we layer on new vehicles, we'll get $10 million plus back, right? So that gives you a little bit of insight into how the asset management fee component will move. Um, the development fees are largely made up of Johnson uh, lot sales, which do ebb and flow. And remember, it's not third-party home sales. It's actually when lot sales close that we get the fee. And um, it, that does ebb and flow. So, for example, you know, Johnson was weaker year over year, but was stronger than Q3. And um, all I could say right now is that that business is extremely strong. Um, Third-party home sales were up 25% year over year after a very strong 2019. I mean, really, the business is booming. So we should be in good shape there, but it's very hard to kind of predict that uh, quarter to quarter. And performance fees are also um, somewhat episodic. But the way, I, the way I, I think if you're looking for guidance, Tal, I would say don't look at the quarter, look at the year. Right. And consider the year uh, really to be more of a run rate and go from there. OK, that's perfect. Thanks, Gary. OK. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Your next question comes from the line of Matt Logan from RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thank you and good morning. Hi, Matt. Uh, Kevin, in some of your prepared uh, comments, you talked about expanding the Build the Rent program. Could you give us an update on where you stand for some of your current projects and maybe how big you think this component of your business could be over the next two or three years? Sure, Matt. I'm going to turn that over to Andy Carmody, who, who leads that business for us. He could be much more articulate on, on, on the business. Sure. Hi, Matt. Uh, this, this is Andy. You know, we talked about this program in our investor day uh, back in January. And uh, a quick snapshot, we have five communities with about 425 homes today. We expect to add nine or 10 communities for another about 1,000 homes uh, this year. And I think where we're headed to in this business is adding something like about 15 uh, communities per year at about 1,500 homes per year in, in the build-to-rent pipeline. Excellent. Um, and maybe changing gears to the for sale housing business. This one's a bit of a two-part question, but given how well the business is performing, does that change your plans for potential dispositions of certain assets or perhaps the entire business? And number two, uh, do you think that bodes well for a potential reversal of some of the fair value write-downs that we've seen last year? Yeah, so, you know, Matt, I'll start with that, and I'll let Andy chime, Andy chime in if he wants to add more detail. The, look, the, the, the big uh, write-down in Q1 was kind of a one-time revaluation where, you know, we changed discount rates and the methodology in a sense, and also we took into account the fact that we thought that, you know, cash flows uh, would be lower, significantly lower, actually, as we went into the pandemic. That turned out not to be the case. Uh, now the, the business is actually booming. We're not going to write it all the way back up. Um, but um, now that we use kind of a DCF to kind of straight line uh, the cash flow over time, we do expect that that, that investment income will grow and, and will certainly look a lot better than, you know, where it has been. So, and it certainly expresses a yield because you have to look at it also, also on the balance, on the outstanding capital, not just in terms of the total quantum of FFO. So I think that the direction there is, is 
is very, very positive, and we'll kind of you'll see that over time. But we're not looking to to do kind of a, a meaningful write up. Um, it, it's it's more gonna you know let's let's take that over time. And um, with, with respect to monetizing quicker, we're in no rush to do that. I mean, we we want to take advantage. It's this has become a really small part of our business. It's only about two percent, but it's generating obviously significant cash flow. And uh, to a point, we want to maximize that cash flow. If we get a great offer um, on a, on a let's say a master plan community, um, or there's an opportunity um, to to you know expedite that, we will. But it's 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 our intent to only do that if it really makes sense. Uh, otherwise, we're just happy to you know take that cash over five to seven years. And anything you want to add? Yeah, Gary, I would just say that the baseline strategy is harvesting for value, which is to sell lots and land at, at full retail value versus discounting that in some sort of bulk sale. But as Gary mentioned, you know if the right opportunity comes along and we do see it from time to time, we'll certainly accelerate and exit on a, a project or two uh, if the economics make sense. Maybe bridging the gap between your build the rent and your for sale housing business. Is there any way to, are there any synergies between the two or ways to uh, perhaps cross sell uh, some of those uh, opportunities? Andy, I'll let you take that. Sure. It's a, it's a great question. You know, what we're doing in the for sale business is allocating um, sections of land in, you know, in many of our large uh, master plan communities, particularly in Texas, have many different products uh, and home types. And what we're doing you know, synergistically there is just adding build to rent as another product line in those neighborhoods. Um, the, the trick, though, is you can't take a 5,000 home uh, master plan community into all rental. So it's, it's bits and pieces, you know, in, in smaller, you know, couple hundred unit sections versus a wholesale revamp of the for sale uh, business. I appreciate the color. And one last one from me, just in terms of the multifamily proceeds, how much of the, of that, uh, that cash do you plan to keep on hand and how much goes to repaying debt? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, so we're, the, the idea is, um, as I mentioned earlier, retire the CIBC facility that matures uh, later this year, which is about $110 million. Also retire uh, some of our SFR um, proceeds there, which is probably another $150 million. Those are all due uh, soon. So that's about 250 of the 430 so far. Um, and then we also have uh, some maturities coming up in the Canadian multifamily for one of the properties. And we also have maturities uh, and outstanding debt on our on our um, revolving credit facility. All of that being considered, that's about 375 of the 425. So that leaves probably about 50 million or so for growth uh, for added acquisitions over the next uh, couple of months. Uh, thanks, Sam. Appreciate the color. I'll turn the call back. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. No further questions at this time. I turn the call back to the presenters for any closing remarks. Thank you, Jason. I'd like to thank all of you on this call for your participation. Watch for our annual report and annual letter in the coming days, and we look forward to speaking with you again in May to discuss our Q1 21 results. That concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.